Our God in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's Day. And we thank you that we, your people, may gather to worship you on this day of rest. We thank you for the freedom to worship you. We thank you that you have enabled us to worship you by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the opportunity to spend some time this morning to look at the doctrines of your church. We thank you that we are not trapped in a vacuum, but that you have graciously blessed your church through time. And we thank you that we can go back and to draw from these truths from hundreds of years ago, for we know that your truth, according to your word, never gets old, but it transcends time. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just as a a quick, uh, not necessarily recap, but looking back at last week, um, you may recall that the last question that we looked at which is question five of the Heidelberg Catechism, asked this, can you live up to all this perfectly? What was the this referring to? It was referring to the law of God. So the preceding question was, what does the law of God require of us? And you may recall that the Heidelberg Catechism quotes straight from the Gospel of Matthew, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, uh, mind, and strength and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the, the, the next question is, can you live up to all this perfectly? The answer, no. I have a natural tendency. You may recall, we, we emphasize that. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. And we talked about that word hate and, and what the, the catechism is conveying to us in such strong language. Well, we see strong language again In this question today that we're starting with, question number six, did God create people so wicked and perverse? Now, I want you to think on those two words, wicked people and perverse people. And before we look at that, just real quickly, what would be the distinction between wicked and perverse? Sometimes those, user, those words are used as synonyms, aren't they? Uh, but the Heidelberg Catechism uses those two words. And so what would be the difference between wicked and perverse? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, in, in looking at some of the commentaries on the Heidelberg Catechism, and that's the way it strikes me as well, that seems to be the interpretation of it, is, is wickedness is a nature. I am by nature a sinner, ergo, I do sin. And so perversion is to pervert that which is right and true and fitting according to God's law. So, question Did God create people so wicked and perverse? Answer, no. Now, before you look at the answer, I know you're all looking down. Look look at at me for just one second. I, I, I want to encourage you before we look at this answer, because as much as I love history and as much as I love historic theology, I want to remind you how remarkably current this issue is. Not too many years ago, in our own denomination, an evangelical conservative denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, we had a pastor in a church who claimed that 
he was a non-practicing homosexual man. And his argument was that this is who I am. This is my identity. I have been, quote-unquote, made, whether he used that argument or not, I have been made this way. Well, I am thankful to say that man is no longer in our denomination. In fact, his entire church left. And I am thankful to say uh, that we have adjusted language within our book of church order to address heresies just like that. But that is where the Heidelberg Catechism is going. To say that God created me this way. I am just a victim of God's creation is absolutely contradictory to Genesis chapter 1, to Genesis chapter 2. Contradictory also to Genesis chapter 3 because that's where we see the fall occur. So listen closely and just, just listen just how incredibly current this old theology is in this answer. No, God created them good and in His own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that they might truly know God, their Creator, love Him with all their heart, and live with God in eternal happiness to, the pray, to praise and glorify Him. Now, there's, of course, a lot there, but that's how God created man originally. Now, we'll come to the issue of that we, unlike Adam and Eve, we inherit the seed, the sinful seed of Adam. Ergo, even within the mother's womb, that child is, more, is, is, is a sinner, is more sinful than Adam was, and Eve was in the beginning. True. But as... To, to make the argument that we are victims of something that God has done is just simply not true. We are fallen indeed, but we are fallen from that perfection. Listen again to that. God created man, male and female, good, and in His own image. And so that's why in this very first point of discussion I have here, is this question necessary? The answer is yes, because if we get off on this point, if we stray from the original righteousness and holiness of Adam and Eve, then everything else from that is a downward spiral. you got to get that right first to understand that this is not how God created us, we are rather fallen. So what then is meant by this statement, God created them good? What does it mean that God created them good? What all does that short, succinct statement encompass? What does it mean that God created them good? Well, that, that, is, that is true. That, you're not mistaken. That's true. But, you, but remember that at the conclusion of creation, what did God say regarding man and all of creation? It's very good. 
So it was, it was good, it was good, it was good, and, and absolutely you're, you're, you're accurate. And then God made man, and that was very good. But then man and creation equaled a total creation of, of very good. But what does that mean? What does it mean that God was created, that rather God created them good? Without fault. And what would faults be? Okay, sin. And what would consequences of that sin be? Yeah, aging, dying, uh, corrupted in the whole man, we, we, we might say. And, and so if you think about this, if, if Adam had never sinned, would he have lived forever? Yeah. Yeah, he would, have, he would have, because death is a consequence of sin. So if he had never sinned, he would have lived forever. And incidentally, just to chase this rabbit on out to the back 40, don't forget that, that we see this in the, in the topic of everlasting life, of eternal life in, in Revelation. There's a, there's a connection between Genesis and Revelation to where when we get to Revelation, all of a sudden we start seeing things that were only seen in Eden. And we start seeing a return to characteristics of Eden. And all of a sudden we get a picture of everlasting life, of eternal life. And interestingly enough, it is a return to Eden. We will be just as righteous, just as perfect forever as Adam was in the beginning. And so to say that God created them good, He created them without sin, without aging, without death, without the corruptions that come with this. Uh, And then, what is meant by in His own image? Now, while you're thinking about this, here's what Scripture says. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have, etc., etc. He describes what man will do in terms of dominion, so forth and so on. And then it concludes, God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So that's a a comprehensive uh, statement in uh, Hebrew poetry, as it were, uh, describing what that what, what God did, but what does that mean? What does it mean that God created man, male and female, He created them in His own image? Great point. One of the things that it means to be created in the, in the image of God is that we share likeness with Him in certain, and J.D. used the word, communicable attributes. That's a good theological term, meaning attributes that we share with God. In contrast to incommunicable attributes, those are attributes that we do not share with God. What would be an example of an attribute that we do not share with God? Omnipotence. Well, true, but in the beginning they were perfect. Omniscience, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-omnipresence, that's right. God is a spirit. He is, he is present always. And so there are a number of characteristics that we don't share with God, but there are some that we do share with God. What would be one or two of those communicable attributes? Wisdom. 
Huh? Relational. We're relational beings. Ooh, that's good. Need to, need to rest, of course, in the, in the sense that God truly doesn't have the need to rest, but He did create, He did choose to rest uh, on the seventh day and so set a pattern for us. What else? Love. <laughs> Fruits of God's Spirit, right? Created Adam in righteousness and holiness and knowledge. All of those are communicable attributes of God. What else does it mean? And, and let me just say this, if, 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 if you're thinking in your mind, um, wow, that is a really deep subject, um, let me comfort you in this. Theologians for thousands of years have wrestled with what this means. So if you seem a bit stumped, I am too. Uh, the, the answer to this is, is debated widely, and what I have found is it's quite easy to get lost in the trees uh, but it is helpful to narrow the scope. And that's, that's why I'm glad that J.D. brought up the communicable attributes. That's one we were kind of like, okay, yeah, that, that's in the strike zone. I, I, I get that. But there are a few others that are, are obvious. And just for sake of time, let me give, give you one of them. Um, one of the things that God did is He uh, bestowed on man a vice regency. Uh, you'll, you'll note that, that God said, I am giving you dominion over the creatures. Um, God, who is king and rules over all, says, I have made you in my likeness, and so you will have a, a type of royalty, so to speak, a vice regency over these aspects. You'll note that when God put Adam and, and Eve within the garden, He put them there to work and keep the garden. Those aren't part of the covenant of works. Those aren't laws. Those are blessings. Those are gifts given to man. One of the gifts that we've been given is work. One of the gifts that we've given is order and the ability to manage and to, to be able to work within the sphere in which God has, has created us. And so all of this, the attri shared attributes with God, so also a vice regency with God and so forth, this is what these and many more things are what it means to be made in God's image. And so if we think back again to the answer, God created them good and in his own image. This was God's choice. This God bestowed upon us in his favor. And then it adds to that. That is, in other words, now let me help with some definable terms. True righteousness and holiness. Um, what would be the, the distinction there between righteousness and true righteousness? Um, I, I think that the emphasis there is perfection. Uh, it, it, is, it is a perfection of righteousness that was part of Adam and Eve in the very beginning, and holiness. And again, remember that Hebrew word, although the Heidelberg Catechism wasn't written in Hebrew, drawing from Hebrew Scripture, uh, that holiness uh, conveys the idea of set apart. God is, is holy, He is above all, and so also man was created very good and so set apart and different and distinct from creation, from the creatures. And then, <clears throat> uh, how does that relate? Uh, I'm looking at the verses that I added here for discussion. How does 
our, how does being created righteous and holy in the beginning and yet now fallen in sin, how does that relate to our redemption? Those two topics, righteousness and holiness. Sure. I've got to move. I'm, I'm getting a bad reflection off that car. Okay. Yeah. I'm still here. That, that is correct. That's, that's where I'm going with this, is what happens when a fallen human who was made good and in the image of God, what happens when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you could say, well, we're justified. Well, we're justified as what? Well, we're on the way. Our original position. That's right. We're justified as righteous, meaning that, that in our standing before God, in God's sight judicially, we are righteous. And we are as righteous as the one whose righteousness has been imputed to us. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is perfect righteousness. So also, and I'm getting to sanctification, but so, so also, walk through this with me. So also, what of our adoption? What happens in that, that adoption? Well, we are, we are added to the number. We are uh, receiving the right of the privileges of the children of God. And so that's restored. And then in our sanctification, what's happening there? We are being made after the image of Christ. So if, if Christ is, and I'm borrowing from Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5, if, 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 if Christ is the perfect Adam, the sinless perfection of man, and we're being made after Him, what's happening? Well, I'm being returned, you're being returned to perfect righteousness and holiness. And someone would say, well, I'll never be righteous, I'll never be holy until eternal life. Well, that is true, but my sanctification is preparing me for that. That's why the Holy Spirit is at work and serves as the guarantee of that inheritance, that eternal life. And so God is at work in you and in me, restoring us to, I think that's the word J.D. used, wasn't it? Restoring us to the image of Christ. And so the idea of righteousness and holiness and the restoration of that is that new self created. This is the way Paul puts it. You've got this verse on your handout in Ephesians chapter 5, that in our new self, <clears throat> we are created after the likeness of God. That, that expression should ring a bell with Genesis. In the image of God. We are created after the likeness of God. Just as God is righteous and holy, so also we are created after that in Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul in Colossians chapter 3 says that, that having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
That is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, the presence of the Holy Spirit, we are being renewed after that very same uh, image. And so that's the idea <clears throat> that this Heidelberg Catechism is pointing out here, even though it is stating it in the negative, that is, God created in good in His own image, and that is, in true righteousness and holiness, that's the direction this is going. And then the next phrase that it says, so that they might truly know God, their Creator. All right, so who's they? They is man singular, but referring to Adam and Eve, right? Man in... in, in uh, prior to, to, to sin, right? So we were not created wicked and perverse. We were created good and in God's image. And so that they might truly know God, their Creator. How did Adam and Eve know God, their Creator? And what was it like? They knew Him personally. To be able to speak with God together in person. One-on-one. How else? Yes, sir. Well, so the shorter catechism uh, says, ask the question, what is God? And the answer, and this is probably what you're remembering from, from childhood, is the answer to that question is, God is a spirit. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so the, the idea of, of that in our, our Westminster Shorter Catechism is the beginning is to understand that God is, uh, is a spirit. He's not uh, a, a, a pagan God. He's not the jolly green giant that sits upon a throne, so forth and so on, but God is a spirit. Yeah, that's probably where you remember that from, right? So how did Adam and Eve know God? How did Adam and Eve know their Creator? What was it like? Well, I mean, I guess to say what was it like, um, your guess is as good as mine. Um, As a a fallen human being, um, my mind uh, is uh, is plagued by the sinful flesh, and and I'm unable to perhaps even imaginarily conceive what that might have been like. But... The fact that, that they knew Him, they knew Him, as Joel said, they knew Him relationally, they knew Him intimately, they knew Him uh, even by, as, as it may be inferred in the Scripture, uh, that even, even by the way that He was present in the garden, so forth and so on. Um, I've got Psalm 8 there on your handout, and the reason I have that there is because it reminds us that even though we as human beings, though we are fallen in sin, though we are a mess, right? And yet, the psalmist reminds us that God has made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And uh, again, while there may be inferences to Christ within Psalm 8, at at the bare understanding of that, uh, meaning not looking at it Christologically, but just understanding what it's saying about us, even though we are fallen in sin, 
every human being is still an image bearer of God. And it's one of the reasons why, uh, even though we may uh, disagree with someone, even though uh, we may be in contention with someone, um, we're still to at least show a human respect for others because there's not one single human being who is not made in the image of God. And so that calls on on us just as, as fellow human beings to acknowledge that and to respect the life uh, that God has in each uh, human being. But the Heidelberg Catechism concludes that, God, that, that they would truly know their uh, Creator, to love Him with all their heart, and to live with God in eternal happiness. Again, part of that we talked a lot about last week, uh, but the last of it concludes to praise and glorify Him, um, which we can't help but think of our shorter catechism, right? What is the chief end of man? Enjoy Him. That's right. To glorify, the man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him uh, forever. That is why God created us. That is what we will do forever in eternity. And so that is why God made us. So, question number seven then where does this corrupt human nature come from? If that's not how we were originally created, but we were created good and in the image of God, where did this all start? Answer, the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. That's the answer. Now it elaborates. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in a sinful condition. Yikes. What happened? If somebody could do this for me, I know that we all seemingly know what the fall is. If somebody could just, in one or two sentences, just tell me what happened succinctly at the fall. What happened at the fall? Yeah, you, that was more than two sentences, Randy. Yeah. <laughs> but, but who's counting, right? So, so uh, Eve and, and then subsequently Adam, uh, they had one command. We refer to that theologically as the covenant of works or the covenant of life. They broke that one commandment. That was it. That was the only commandment. They broke that one, and so they sinned against God as a result they and their posterity after them were guilty of that first sin. They needed original righteousness and they were fallen completely in their nature, in their being. But there's this expression here, and I find it intriguing, uh, partly just why... uh, the writer of the Heidelberg Catechism, why he chooses certain words that he does. Like in in last week when we talked about the word hate God and hate our neighbor, in this one he uses an expression, poison. He says that, that the fall poisoned our nature. 
How did the fall poison our nature? <clears throat> Do what, Joel? Can't change it. Yeah. Yeah. I already drank the poison. Yeah. 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 There's only one antidote. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I can't just wake up and decide today I'm not going to be poisoned anymore. Uh, I've already I've already drunk by virtue of Adam uh, uh, eating the uh, the fruit. Uh, so now I'm I'm poisoned. And and the really sad thing is is so are all of my children and their children after them, so forth and so on. Somebody said something else back here. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we're aging, right? Yeah, we're poisoned. Although some are getting a little better looking, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about that if we have time. Talk about uh, uh, the um, what's seen uh, at the at the period of uh, Noah and prior to the flood. A pretty interesting study on the word perverse. Uh, but to say that our our, our that we that the, the that our nature is poisoned at the fall is, is to say that sin has so perverted our nature. So so um, uh, well, I think Joel's point of, of there's only one antidote. So corrupted us as such that there is no hope whatsoever. Once poisoned, always poisoned. JD uh, JJ, you were going to say something. Yeah, yeah, so, so, so poisoned that, that, that we have grown apart uh, from our Creator who uh, created us in love. What is the result for us as Adam's posterity? We all understand this because this is the beginning of understanding the gospel. Uh, and uh, there are a number of verses that I could have put here, uh, but I chose to put Psalm 51.5 uh, because it goes all the way back to the womb. Uh, the, ba- the baby in the mother's womb is still a sinner. In, my, in sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, that is not saying that she sinned and as a result she had the baby. What it's saying is, is that conception occurred, the seed of Adam was uh, passed on, and in his mother's womb there was David, a sinner who might only be saved by God's grace through uh, faith. So, question number eight. But are we so corrupt? And I love the way this question starts. It, it, it's, it's, it's almost if it's leading. Like, surely we can't be that bad. Sure, surely these, these Calvinists have gotten carried away. They make us out to be fiends. Or maybe I'm just reading something into it. But I think that's where it's going. Are we, are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Now, hold that question. While you're thinking on it, the answer in the Heidelberg Catechism is yes. Unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Now, I, I, want, I want to push back against this, not because I disagree with it, but just for sake of discussion. So, if it says that I am totally unable to do any good, 
and inclined toward all evil, how is it that I know unbelievers who do remarkably good things for humanity? I mean, heck, just the guy helping a little old lady across the street. Something as small as that. Uh, People that give generously to good causes. I have seen sacrificial love in unbelievers. I have, had, I have seen people be willing to even die for other people who do not know the Lord. So how is it that this can say, and how is it that we believe that someone is totally unable to do any good and, my other part is, inclined toward all evil? Does that mean that in the unbeliever's heart and mind that he or she is always in pursuit and can think of nothing else but to do evil things that are contrary to God's law. Kind of like um, the uh, superhero movies, right? And there's always this extreme uh, between the superhero and the villain, and the villain's always bad, he thinks bad things, he wants to do bad things to people, and so forth and so on. Is that what it's saying? Is it saying that that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward evil, and so the little bit of good that we see is a lie, and that people are so such villains inside that they've just fooled us all? Say that. Well, I'm going to repeat you. Bradley said, they do good things, but they don't do them for God. That is a great distinction. JJ? They're good. They may do good, but the result of that good is for nothing. The good that they do does not save them, we would say in our evangelical nomenclature. Great observations. What else? I'm going to run over and give you a high five. I, I think that, that is exactly the logic that flows with these in, in that order. We, even the most vile of humans, may somehow do some good deed. And that good deed arises out of, albeit they are sinners and fallen, that goodness arrives out, arises out of their being made in the image of God. That is something that flows from Him to them by virtue of their existence that they may do something. Although it is not for God, and even though they would not acknowledge God and they would reject God, and even though what they do does nothing in terms of their relationship with God, in terms of being reconciled to Him or being saved unto eternal life, nevertheless, there are people who do not know the Lord who may do good things, and I think that's exactly right. What else? Other observations? Well, these are excellent observations, and I think the summary of this is is that what the, the catechism is expressing is not that people who are fallen in sin don't do quote-unquote good things, but the good things according to the perfect standard of God fall far short. It's why, incidentally, we quote Romans 3.23 all the time. But I find it interesting that everybody gets the first part and forgets the last part. What's Romans 3.23 say? All have sinned. 
Got it. We've got that, right? Total depravity. But what's the last part? Why does Paul say, and fall short of the glory of God? Why not say, and fall short of God's righteousness? And why not fall short of God's perfect holiness? Why not? And the answer is, is that God, who is perfection, and the glory of God, in Hebrew, the the heaviness, the kabod, the, the heaviness of God that radiates from Him, His perfection is the standard. And any good deed that you and I could do compared to the glory of God, not so good after all, is it? Maybe good according to my standards, maybe good according to your standards. Is it good according to the perfect glory of God? No. No, it's not. And so we must be born again by the Spirit of God. And and I I said I was going to reference Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The state prior to the flood was wickedness. I would imagine that there were still some, quote-unquote, worldly good things happening. But according to God's perspective, that is in His perfection, there was not any but all evil but for for Noah, which we learn about later. Incidentally, when God, just to chase this rabbit briefly, and we're almost out of time, but, but when God destroyed mankind, but for those that He saved on the ark, when God destroyed mankind and wiped them off the face of the earth, and so also then began to repopulate the earth via Noah and his family, uh, what were some of the first things that Noah and his descendants began to do? Well, Noah got drunk. His youngest son, some way, somehow, in a shame culture, sinned against his father. Their descendants proceeded from them. And you get, in a relatively short amount of time, you get the Tower of Babel. What's happening at the Tower of Babel? One language. One language. And so everybody's like, well, we all speak the same language. We can cooperate here by virtue of us being able to, we are the world. We are the people. We are to build a tower up to heaven and glorify ourselves. And that's what they did. Yeah. You like that? And that, that's Brandon's pulling together blips and blurbs from different things. I'm sure this shows up somewhere, right? Singing we are the world. But that's, that's what happened. And God says, well, as a result, I wiped out mankind with a flood. Now I'm disseminating mankind outward with multiple languages. Incidentally, just to to really chase another rabbit, in Revelation we see as we grow closer to eternal life a return of the gospel being sent out to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. At the day of Pentecost, the apostles began to do what? Speak in languages, a return back to pre-Babel to be able to say, this is where we're going, we as one people. But it's not going to happen by the will of man, like in the Tower of Babel, but rather it is going to only happen through the gospel of Jesus Christ.
All right, so we are out of time, but I want to end on this. Um, as the Catechism says, that we must be born again by the Spirit of God. And it is the Spirit of God who brings us to life. It is the Spirit of God who opens our eyes to see Christ and Him crucified. It is only through the regenerating, that's the theological word meaning born again, it is only through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that anyone believes, but praise God in His mercy. He has bestowed favor upon those whom the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. They see Christ for who He truly is. They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so are saved. And so I'm going to end on that. We'll pick up on this topic next week. Our God in heaven, we do thank You that it's not by anything good that we do because our good uh, is rotten compared to Your perfect goodness. And anything that we could do that would seemingly merit favor with You is so far short of Your perfect righteousness and holiness. And so we thank You in the fullness of time You sent Your Son to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, to rise again from the dead on the third day, conquering both sin and death, that we might be reconciled to You. We who were made in Your image are redeemed in the perfect image of Your Son. And we look to Him and to Him alone for our salvation, for our life. And so we, Your people, gather together on this Lord's Day to praise You through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this all in His name. Amen.